0: Today's Galazzo is Granata flavored. They were one of the greatest teams of all time. They won five straight Scudetti. They saw off war, racial terror, and every opponent put before them, but they lost their lives in one of the greatest sporting tragedies ever. Today we salute El Grande Torino.
1: Arriva in quarta tascabile con le mascotte delle due squadre. De Pedrini Junior porta anche la giustificazione di papà, oggi assente.
0: Yes, indeed, we're going back, way back for today's Golazzo, all the way to the 1940s, where we're joined by Gabriele Marcotti. Welcome back, Gabriele. Great to be back. And James Horncastle. Hello. How old were you then, Jimbo? (laughs) We're almost at the anniversary of the Superga air disaster, which remains the defining moment, sadly, of, of... what many say is the greatest Italian team ever. And, of course, just last week, Sauro Amar, the last surviving member of that side, passed away at the age of 92. So it seems a good time to remind people who that club were, who the team were, how it all ended for them, and maybe ask what could have been if it hadn't had that tragic, that tragic end. Torino Gabriele, first of all, a lot of people know them as a kind of middling city aside at best. But this is one of the grandest clubs of all.
2: Torino's current lot is what you see with sort of second teams. For, and I don't say that in a disparaging way, in a lot of of major cities around Europe, you know, where a bit like Highlander, there can be only one as the game polarizes, everything pushes towards one team. And you can probably do a, do a parallel, and goodness, I'll get abused for this, but with Everton, perhaps, in in, in this country, Manchester City before Sheikh mansour a lot of cities like that which simply aren't aren't big enough or, or weren't big enough um to support two powerhouses that's been torino's dimension of of late mm. but you know you go back to a different era and it was very much a different story and you know we wonder what would have happened had superga not occurred and oh, there's obvious another obvious parallel with manchester united and, and munich obviously mm. But I think the other thing to know was that we wonder what would have happened if world war ii hadn't occurred right in the sense that you know they won their their first title in 1942-43 mm-hmm. and then you know there was what three years yeah, without without football as well i mean if- unleashing the dominance of the the firemen of la spezia <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah who unfortunately never were assigned that title that's formally. so bad isn't it could you just explain james well during 1944, um, I think in the north of Italy, um, there was football was split into three groups and the winners of those groups played each other. Um, so Torino was one, Venezia was another one and the Fire Brigade of Spezia was the other and the Fire Brigade of Spezia won. But that was right in between um, Torino's sort of what? Uh, five consecutive straight um, titles.
0: And it's not officially counted. So as it's a... not officially counted, yeah.
3: but they did, if you like, get in the way of it.
0: Mm. Well, as as did the Second World War as it did with so many things, Gabriele. Let's go back then to where, where Il Grande Torino started, how that extraordinary side came about. And it's the, the start of the 40s when Ferruccio Novo takes over, Torinese industrialist takes over of this club that's won one Scudetto, which they they basically won it in '27, then that got revoked for match fixing, and then they won it the next season anyway. So they've won a title. He takes over in the early '40s and he starts to assemble a team.
2: Yeah, and in part because of his uh, because of his background, because he was he's more well traveled, I think he was um, he, he was far more open minded. Than, uh, um, than perhaps his contemporaries at the time, especially in that context. I mean, you have to remember that this was, this was Mussolini's uh, Italy, right? Um, and so he was certainly not averse to, to, to looking at what was happening in, in, in other countries, seeing how a modern football team should be run, could be run, and turning to some people um, who, who might have been a bit undesirable at some of the more, shall we say, fascist football clubs yeah. in Italy.
0: And you you're talking specifically there about the manager above all.
2: Yeah. This extraordinary character of um of, of Egli Erbstein. There's a wonderful book about it. Yeah, Dominic there's, there's, Bliss Dominic Bliss, that's yeah,
0: right. it's extraordinary work. And the detail there of what happens to Erbstein and on his route as a, a football player, it he even ends up in Brooklyn at one point, comes back to Italy. Plays uh, various places, at Vicenza, starts managing at Bari, has great success at Lucchese, and that's where uh, Norvo decides this is the guy for us at, at Torino. But even then, he almost had to live in hiding while managing Il Grande Torino.
3: Yeah, I mean, what he did at Lucchese is nothing short of extraordinary. Really, you could understand why uh, people were looking at him and thinking this guy is a very talented coach because he took them from what the fourth division to a mid table Italian side, and this is a club from. From Luca, and yeah, with Erbstein, he I think got the job in what 1939, and then basically has to he leaves Luca because um, you know, his daughter Susanna sort of gets kicked out of school there because of you know, their Jewish heritage. Yeah,
2: for this, those who haven't worked it out, this is a Erbstein year after
0: Jewish. the uh, the 1938 Manifesto of Race, which yeah. uh, effectively brought in racial laws. Italy.
3: He moves north thinking it might be better there, but yeah, his daughter's what privately educated. For a period, he lives in hiding in, I think, Novo's apartment in Via Micà and then basically organizes a job swap to get out of Italy where he's due to go and coach this team in in Rotterdam, Xerxes. The guy who was the coach of that team basically said, I'll come and coach Torino. And then as they're sort of going um, to, to Holland, um, they have to go through Germany and they get kicked off the train, put in this kind of, uh, in this apartment block where all Jews were kept and being the smart guy that he was, he, I think, traded all his money for diamonds, basically, um, gets one of the guards to, um, to allow him to use the phone to, to call Fedor novo who basically then gets onto the consulate and, and says, right, we'll organize you for the, to go back to Hungary, to Budapest where. He lives for what another nine years. Sets up a textiles business with his his brother, um, but obviously, you know, Hungary in that time also um, comes under far right regime, fascist regime, and, uh, and and gradually it catches up with them.
0: He ends up in a in a
3: work camp, mm. and then there's this extraordinary
0: story that he he actually escapes from a train which is heading towards a, a concentration camp, I think, with. Bella Goodman. yeah,
3: again one of the uh, one of the great coaching minds of, of of that generation, and seems to have managed to um, to survive him and his family. Who, yeah, his his girls, for example, were for a long time I think in a in a convent which was on on Vatican territory. So mm. it was, um, yeah, in theory the Nazis could not get to them, um, like the sound of music. Yes, um, and you had what. Various not only sort of Vatican diplomats, but also Swedish diplomats like, um, well Wallenberg, mm. um, doing everything in his power to to save as many Jews as possible. And you know, it's it's not confirmed, but I think there was a period where he he worked in that Swedish legation um, because you know after living and working in Budapest for nine years, you know he he knew the local community and knew where he could you know maybe help help uh, Wallenberg save, save other Jews like him.
0: So, Obstein survives the war, his family survived the war, and he makes his way back to Italy in the kind of aftermath of a, a post-war Italy, still trying to pick itself up
3: from... Uh... I mean, there's all this amazing speculation, really, about during the war itself, whilst he was in Budapest, he would, um, or at least on one occasion, came back to Italy. A great risk to his life um to um, to see Novo, um, hoping that I think Novo would use his industrial contacts to help him and his brother get his textiles business off the ground. but also, yeah, he spends a little bit of time in Trieste, a little bit of time in Venice, where some of the members of this grande Torino side were either emerging or playing and there's mm-hmm. the suggestion that there was always this there was a constant discourse going on between him and Novo as to who the team should sign what the team should look like. And um, Nova certainly felt that the the continuity that they had in that time, even throughout all this extraordinary circumstances of the war, obviously served them in Mm. in very good stead, was one of the reasons why they were so successful in that period.
0: Well, the the circumstances of the war, and a lot of people would look at it and think, how on earth could you have a championship while... (laughs) essentially the half the country is under an occupying force or in fact both both sides are but different occupying forces Torino basically they had to they became Fiat Torino this is bizarre so Juve's historic backers actually ended up forging a partnership with Torino for the purposes of giving the players uh, an official occupation so that they wouldn't be called up for the the front lines by the Italian army Juventus themselves emigrated to Alba to avoid I guess, personal risk, uh, and and was sponsored by a different car company.
3: Yeah, Cisitalia. Italia. Um, Mussolini, I mean, to go back to what you were saying there, but why were they still playing football for a long period, really, throughout this war? Mussolini thought the war would be over quite quickly. He thought that um, it was good to show that there was business as usual going on, i.e. City Ave was still being played, and that these players were better service to their country playing football than they were On the front line. Mm. Erbstein
0: returns. And although they've already won one title in '43, this is where the real Grandi Torino takes the field.
1: What
2: kind of football did Erbstein bring to Torino? We're limited in what we know because all we have is some sort of... Grainy YouTube pictures with uh, with funny commentary and uh, and the contemporaneous uh, accounts of the time, which you kind of realize a lot of times they were somewhat over the top. But by all accounts, he put together a really dynamic team. Um, above all, um, it was a very attacking side, and a side that managed to sort of fuse athleticism and um, and technique mm. to to great effect. I think they averaged, there was one season, I think they well they set the Cedia goals record one season. It was 120 128, goals. 125 goals. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they averaged more than three goals a game mm. more than once. And That's while right. people did score more goals back then, I mean, it was still, it was still quite um, an extraordinary feat. And I think the other thing which struck you was he was one of the first people from, from what I read who got the skill players to really work. So, you know, we, we've spoken in the past on the show about, you know, Giuseppe Meazza who would kind of, you know, he'd have nights with loose women and then walk on, go on the pitch, walk around. And then he'd only kind of spring to life when the ball got to him. And that didn't happen. There was a discipline and sort of a, a, a collective ethos to, to this Torino team where, you know, even people like Valentino Mazzola would, would run and tackle mm. back and, and, and have that humility. And part of that that regime, that discipline regime, was was
0: Lesley Leavesley, who's a former Man United and, and Crystal Palace defender, who, who, who shares managing duties for at least one of the seasons. Sometimes it seems to be listed as a trainer, other times as, as you, maybe the youth team coach. He certainly did work with the Italian Olympic side at the uh, at the London Olympics.
3: Yeah, and that's quite interesting in itself because. Uh, Fidel Chonova, the the president of of Torino, he knew that they could not compete with Juventus when it came to financial resources. So he surrounded himself with football people, guys who'd won the league in 27-28 with Torino, Um, but also Leslie Leavesley. And if you go to the um, Torino Museum in Gugliasco, you'll see his his personal diaries, um, which were uh, donated by his son, Bill, who I think lives in Doncaster. You had Vittorio Pozzo, the Italy manager, you know the most successful manager of all time, if you like, in that he won two World Cups. Back to back. Dropping in and giving his opinion on things. And then you had Herb Stein, who obviously not only worked in Italy, but all over the world, famously, I think, brought the WM, um, Herbert Chapman's kind of innovation, to Italy. And no one else was really playing that. And it took a long time for people to catch up. And when it came to playing that as well, a lot of people just could not really cope with it. and was someone who, in Erbstein, was able to bring in training from other disciplines as well. His daughter was a very famous prima ballerina, and when it came to teaching footwork, skill would, would get these guys to do dance lessons, you know, as well.
0: A lot of what we would think of even now is it was very modern ideas. So from the 1942-43 season, having been pipped by Roma for the 42 title. They then go on this run in which they lose only 17 of 170 league matches. This is with that interim of, of the war going right through to 49 when, and the fateful flight back from, from Lisbon. Only losing 17 of 170 league matches, establishing a trademark style, establishing a trademark blitz when their captain and key figure, Valentino Mazzola, would roll up his sleeves and they would just destroy teams as a, a famous match against Roma where they're 1-0 down at half-time and Mazzola, as they're coming up for the second half, shouts at the rest and rolls his sleeves up at the start of the second half and they win 7-1. And they were that kind of team.
3: Well, the great story about that, and Sinisa Mihajlovic, when he got the Torino job, told this. He was he just um, was hanging around the training ground one day and this this old guy in his sort of you know, 80s and 90s and uh, he was just telling him stories from that, that age and there was this station master who used to basically come to the... Come to the stadium with his little little horn, and whenever either Torino were behind, which wasn't often, and whenever they were bored, which was a lot of the time because it was just too easy for them, he would toot his horn, and that was the sign where Mazzola would roll up his sleeves, and for 15 minutes they would just put on a show and blow teams away. All right. Da, 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 da.
1: Charge. <laughs> So Valentino
0: Mazzola, who's the iconic figure of this period, who Novo had brought in, after his work with Venezia, pipping Torino to the Coppa Italia, and I think having a hand in them missing out on the 1942 title, he brings in Mazzola and he brings in his his kind of midfield partner, Ezio Loic. L'Elefante. L'Elefante. So... Matt Sola, why is he such an iconic figure?
2: He had had this sort of larger-than-life charisma. I mean, the, the image of him pulling up the sleeves. You know, when we talked earlier about how they combined athleticism and work rate with technique. You know, he was the superstar. He was the matinee idol. At the time, people like that didn't... You know, they had other guys who did the work for him. And yet, he very much relished that side of the game as well. Torino also stood for something um, at the time and certainly they did again in the 70s, which is, you know, in, in this city, Turin, which is sort of different from the rest of Italy because obviously they were, they were under French rule and then in like sort of the original incarnation of, of Italy, they were kind of the, the first part you know, Italy was kind of put together piecemeal, adding bits here and there, they were kind of the original part. The reason mm. the Azzurri play in, in blue is that that's the color of, of the House of Savoy, which is the Italian royal family. Or And
0: which, they were based in, in Turin. That was the original capital.
2: That's right. Yes. If we still, of course, we had the sense to go and get rid of them. And we did rig a referendum to do it. But that's a whole other story. That's when, in popular parlance, you know, the Agnelli family became the royalty of Italy. Uh-huh. And... You have know, the city Turin, which would later be invaded by people from the south of Italy to go and to go and work in the factories. But even then, it, they had an outsized importance um, in in the city. Turin has always been an automotive center. If you go back to to sort of the 1920s, there were I think seven different car manufacturers in Turin, you know, and then and then there was one Fiat, and everybody worked for Fiat. And you could almost have this demarcation. So for a lot of people, not so much the people from the South who moved there, many of who moved there in the 50s. But I think for local Torinesi who maybe worked for FIA or whatever, they said, you know what? I spend you know eight hours of my life sleeping, uh, a couple hours a day grooming and eating, 10 hours a day in your freaking factory. The rest of the time, I am not. Your servant, And so in some ways it was almost a way of, of a establishing vanity. a sense of independence, a sense of freedom of not being, you know, part of, of, of the Agnelli mm. fiat machine, if you will. And, and in some way, Valentino Mazzal, of course, not being from Turin also, also helped that, you know, in the sense that we are something bigger, you know, we are Turin, we are named after the city, but, but we, we transcend it. And when you speak about transcending it, the other obvious way
0: was what they meant for the Italian national side and a national team that in the post-war years, in the rubble of the post-war years, became of of huge importance. And and their impact on the Azzurri is unprecedented. I think there's there's no – I can't think of a a team, unless it's, I don't know, something from Ceaușescu or something like that, that, (laughs) where one club dominates the – the, the national side to that extent. I mean, when you look at their results, they beat England 4-0 in '48 with seven players from Torino. They beat Hungary with the young Frank Puskas in the, in, in the side, 3-2. All 10 outfield players were, were Torino back then. Every time the Italian national side took to the field, it was essentially il grande Torino with one or two
1: ringers. ascoltatori buonasera che parla. Madrid 27 marzo 1949. Per la prima volta l'incontro Spagna-Italia si svolge nella capitale iberica. Le due nazionali si sono già incontrate tredici volte. Cinque vittorie azzurre, tre spagnole, cinque pareggi, ma ecco gli italiani, ma ci a Castigliano, Palarinco con il debuttante Amadei, Brigamonti e Menti, Decatini, altre esordiente, come Lorenzi qui con Carapellese, Mazzona e il capitano degli azzurri.
3: There's a great story about that Hungry Game in that Potter was very reluctant to field and all Torino side for Italy. So he was going to play Carlo Parola, um, the Juventus player. who And Panini who- silhouette. Exactly. Mm. The guy whose scissor kick is immortalized in that Panini um, sticker. Um, but he was uh, in Glasgow playing in an exhibition game for the rest of Europe against Britain, um, which the rest of Europe lost. And he was due to fly back in order to play in this game. But there was some dispute going on between the French and Italians, and the French closed their airspace, so he basically could not get back. So that's why they ended up playing ten Torino players rather than eleven. And the only player who wasn't a Torino player was the goalkeeper, and um, Bacci Galupo, the Torino goalkeeper, um, held no grudge against was it Sentimenti, Sentimenti who in goal. Quarto, eh? Yeah, and that when in the Superga crash when they were going through some of the personal effects, they found Baci Gruppo's wallet. And in there, there's a photo of him
2: and Sentimenti Quattro. So
3: ah, Very you know. poignant.
2: Because of World War II, Italy had the longest run ever. Hopefully, hopefully that will always be the case as defending world champions because obviously it was, it was 12 years and they were coming after, you know, in a situation where they had won the two previous World Cups. They'd won the 1936 Olympics, which... You know some people can giggle at but you know was was considered important at the time and they were so reliant obviously on on Torino as James has said that it's not surprising that then that affected everything including the, the 1950 world cup mm. in uh, in brazil where they took the bolt and they were terrible and once they got there and whatnot so you have a team here that's
0: completely dominating on a national level and also at a club level Matsola himself A a midfielder, but a guy who could play from all accounts pretty much anywhere. The 46-47 season he scores, top. he's top scorer in the league with 29 goals. The following season he gets 25. He had 118 goals in 204 appearances. He also still holds the record for the fastest hat-trick in Serie A, which he, he, he got three goals in essentially 180 seconds against Vicenza in 47. And the team are absolutely flying. He is a folk hero, as you say, Gabriele. But all the team, by now, Baggio, Lupo, Loic, Orsola,
2: Gabetto, Gabetto, oh, yeah. Menti,
3: Menti whose, whose son would later go on and well, I think he ran in the Olympics with Pietro Manea, their most famous ah. Italian athlete. Really, you look up and down it, um, Italian football; its geography, the stadiums that are named after, you know, Rigamonti, pre- Stadium, Menti. Menti, Vicenza. Um, really goes to show the kind of legacy that this team had. And the,
0: the weird thing is that this being, what, the 40s, they've all got other occupations. And Ezio Loic has a, a, a paint business. There's a radio clip actually of Franco Orsola discussing with him the range of colours that they offer. And Loic, in a, possibly a scripted moment, suggests that he must watch out for the for the claret colour because if you get that on your Scudetto... You're never getting it off.
1: Se tu dipingi anche una volta sola con questo color granata, mettiamo uno scudetto, non c'è più niente da fare. Non lo mandi più via. E tu Gabetto, come preferisci il pubblico, come spettatore di partito, come cliente di bar? È difficile rispondere, vero, Osola? Proprio così. Per quanto la risposta sia resa più agevole dal fatto che quasi sempre i tifosi sono anche degli ottimi consumatori.
0: Fascinating to actually hear these mythical figures speaking. Forty-eight, forty-nine, then what proves to be their final season and they're flying once again there's, there's, there's talk Dominic Bliss's book suggests that Leavesley's actually, Leavesley's actually been offered both a coaching role with Italy by Vittorio Pozzo and possibly even the top job at Juventus
3: well and also Valentino Mazzola had big offers and they would later find out that he was being paid double what everybody else was which they were all okay with it, of course um because they had to recognize that um, I think both Inter and Milan wanted him. Juventus thought that they were getting him, but obviously ended up, I think, pulling out, knowing that the city would would uh, would descend. <laughs> descend there would be riots on the streets of Turin if he crossed um, from from Torino to to Juventus. So.
0: Mm. Well, they've been off on a tour of Brazil. They're basically owning football that season, start of '49. They've. They've beaten Juventus again 3-1. And then the, their final game in Italy was a league match against Inter at San Siro. Squadra blocco,
1: Squadra Armonia. Squadra volontà, soprattutto volontà.
0: Then comes this friendly with Benfica, essentially, with four games still to go in the in, in the title race, which you know is is by, by and large a formality, but they fly off to Portugal. Because uh, Francisco Ferreira, the Portuguese captain, is a a great friend of Valentino Mazzola's and he basically asks him to bring Torino along for his, his testimonial. They play the game, they lose, but whatever. They begin their journey back, they stop at Barcelona, refuel, and then they head back to Turin and they're about half an hour away from landing when the plane's wing touches, catches a wall of... The Basilico of Superga, which is on a hill just outside Turin. It's a very, very stormy day. There's no visibility. The plane smashes into the hillside, and all 31 people on board perish.
1: Un crepuscolo durato tutto il giorno, una malinconia da morire. Il cielo si sfaldava in nebbia, e la nebbia cancellava Superga. Dice il capellano della Basilica, ho sentito un rombo paurosamente vicino, poi un colpo, un terremoto, poi silenzio e una voce di fuori, è caduto un apparecchio. Questo è il terapieno flying the Torino back from Lisbon, hit the spire of Supergo Cathedral, 10 miles outside Turin, and burst into flames. All its 31 passengers were killed. Among the dead was the team's English trainer, Leslie Leavesley, an old Manchester United player. 10 miles between safety and disaster.
3: Well, after that intergame, Jimbo, they'd uh, flown from Malpensa in, in Milan. And the normal thing is, when you fly in this, I think it was a charter flight with the same captain, um, you fly back to the same airport. So there's a lot of speculation as to why they didn't fly back to Milan that day. Was it because the team was absolutely shattered? Um, after going straight from that game to playing this friendly, they still had four games to go. Or was it because going to Milan, which is a bigger airport, busier airport than the one in Turin, customs a little bit more stringent, and they were bringing back gifts, cigarettes a lot, and that sort of thing. And because they were heroes in Turin, they'd just be allowed to kind of just walk through customs and uh, and go about their business in that layover at Barcelona. They they bump into the Milan side that have gone to play against Real Madrid. Um, and basically, those Milan players, they you know, sit and have a drink with them at one stage and they're like, these guys are absolutely shattered. They're knackered. So, in that sense, I think that was one of the motivating factors in the decision to fly back to Turin rather than, than to Milan. Mm. Well, Torino
0: were proclaimed winners two days later of that Serie A season. And for the rest of the campaign, the four remaining matches... They fielded their youth team, and all their opponents fielded their youth teams against them. So many, so many extraordinary details. Podsu, who, who the, the the Italy manager who went up the hill of Superga to ID the bodies.
3: Mm. That is incredible. There's a, apparently there was a um, a guy um, looking at the bodies, and he said, "That's Ballerin. and then behind him, is a, um, he said, "No, that's not Ballerine. That's uh, Rigamonti." and that was Potts who just walked up to the to the top of the hill had heard about it felt um, that he needed to be there and would end up identifying each and every one of the the bodies of the of the next 24 hours
1: a city weeps it mourns more than a football team for the Torino was part of their life something personal and yet shared by them all has gone
2: four years
0: reports of the of funeral Suggest figures of around a million people on the streets of Turin, which is not that big a city.
2: No, it's not. In fact, when when Giannini died, nearly uh, 50 years later, people say that it was it was the biggest crowd since the funerals of, of the Grande Torino, and it really was something that. It was a massive blow to the, to the post war optimism. Yeah, it, w- it was the setback of sort of you know are, are, are we going back there? I mean, is this were those six years between nineteen thirty nine and nineteen forty five were Were they actually not an aberration where where mankind did unspeakable things to each other? But you know, are is this darkness is this darkness returning? Um, and obviously, one of the iconic again images of that is that of, of Valentino Mazzola's son. Um, who, of course, would go on to, like his dad, become one of Italy's greatest ever. But He became the heart of another grande team, the grande Inter. Yeah, he'd, be, he'd become one of, you know, win two European Cups and and become really a, a symbol of post-war. And in, in some ways, and this is years later, and obviously it's been romanticized because it was such a tremendous tale and whatever. But this little boy who lost his dad, you know, became sort of the symbol of... Of redemption and life renewing itself and circle of life and all that jazz, um, but you know I think these these narratives, these sort of foundational myths, are also are also important and kind of what makes what makes people attach to the past in football. Mm-hmm. You know, like all oh, those people who talk about well, Duncan Edwards without you know without ever having seen him, but they're sure that he would have been the England captain and won five World Cups, which. You know, it's it's the same thing I yeah. think with with Mazzotta. The curious thing with Torino, though, is the way that
0: this legacy that the story was almost neglected. The Philadelphia Stadium, where they played, that was their home ground for for all the glory years, fell into disrepair. When I went to Italy, I remember they would use it for training sessions, but the thing was dilapidated and falling apart, and it was soon closed for safety reasons. They've now reacquired the site and, to an extent, rebuilt it as a, a training ground. But oh, it's
3: beautiful. I went this time last year, um, and obviously there are still some of the, the standings, uh-huh. uh, the stands have been reclaimed, the original walls, the original, some of the original turnstiles are all there, and um, yeah, this is a team that um, yeah, lives uh, in the past, its present is always its past, you know, they play in the Stadio Grande Torino, they train at the Philadelphia, it's inescapable, um, and when I, when I went
0: to the Philadelphia, this would be in 92, something like that, we were doing an interview with, a, I think, Christian Vieri. Okay. We were in one of those kind of dusty rooms, which was before kind of sponsors' boards and that. Around the corner, there was just something propped up against a wall. And I remember thinking, well, what on earth is that? It was the propeller of the, the plane that had been carrying them back from Lisbon. It was just parked in a room, as a, much as you would something you just don't know what to do with. Mm. Now, as you say, at have they've, they've established a museum, but I just thought it was an extraordinary thing from, for, for the club to just leave it lying around like that.
3: Yeah, the museum is fantastic. I'd recommend anyone going, mm. because some, all of the artefacts, the relics that they have from that time, there are some personal effects you'd never think they'd have, have been through a horrific crash, that they're still so incredibly intact.
1: People of Galazzo, if you want to combine your knowledge of the footy with your knowledge of the footsie, then you need to get yourself over to the Football Stock Market Football Index. Football Index is a new way to profit from your knowledge of Serie A, the Premier League and beyond. Buy and sell players, build a portfolio, earn dividends and sell at a profit. Because you listen to Galazzo, you can try Football Index and trade up to £1,000 entirely risk-free. Just head to footballindex.co.uk, enter the promo code TOTALLY, And if you don't love Football Index, you'll get a full refund with their seven-day money-back guarantee. Download the app or play online at footballindex.co.uk and become a football trader today. T's and C's apply. You must be over 18. Deposit required. And please trade responsibly. Post-Superga.
0: Torino struggle on. They eventually go down. Italy has its problems. You mentioned the 1950 World Cup and the story we're telling on Mondays totally of how, because of the trauma of losing their players in, a, in an air crash. Italy sent their team to Brazil on a boat. They essentially did no cardio whatsoever except for jogging around the, the deck, got beaten almost immediately and, and, and crashed out within two games and were subsequently put on a plane home because by that point, who cared what happened to them, I guess, <laughs> is, the, is the inference. Uh, Torino did win a title again in 76 under Gigi Radici, which I always think of as a very curious a set of circumstances and I know that's got its own political backdrop again of the the 70s and Juve's dominance and that's something we'll we should look at on another occasion because it it comes after another huge dose of tragedy that this club has suffered the uh, the, the death of Gigi Moroni who was going to be the next yeah. superstar of Italian and possibly world football.
3: But the irony here is what was the name of the the pilot uh, of mm-hmm. the Playing in the Superga. Meroni. Meroni. And who was the
0: man who ran him down that day post-match and, and, and ultimately killed him on the streets of Torino.
3: Who became? President of Torino.
2: Bizarre. And who at the time was? Uh, working for Juventus. Uh, yeah, he was Juventus' head of communications.
0: Very strange. What if... Well, two questions really just to finish off then about Il Grande Torino. One, why did they never become everyone's team the way that, say, Man United have?
2: It was simply the era. I mean, I think they became a very, a very popular team among people from that time. But Italian football at the time, most football, was a lot more regional than it is now. Television in Italy started in 1953. Right. You know, you had, you had radio, but, and I appreciate the irony of saying this on a podcast, but, you know, if you're a kid, you don't normally get excited by three dudes in a room talking. Um, unless it's the three of us, of course, without that supportive images, without that continuity bleeding on into the, into the 1950s, without there being an impact on, on the national team as well. Um, remember too, this was a country that throughout the thirties, um, under Mussolini was, they loved being spoon fed tales of great mythic Italian success with the two World Cups and, and Primo Carnera, uh, the, the, the great boxer and whatnot. And then all of a sudden, after the war, you, know, after you have the war, and then that all ends. And then all of a sudden, everything is, is subdued. The country's rebuilding. While, as James said, they had this incredible symbiosis with the city of Turin, it was a local thing. You know, you could see these guys walking around town doing normal things, but it didn't necessarily go over into, into other parts of the country.
0: And uh, Sauro Tomao, who was carrying an injury, the I think the only member of the first team who didn't make the trip, the, the third-choice keeper, also stayed behind. And, and, and Tomaya met years, well, obviously years later, uh, who, as, as I mentioned, passed away last week. And he was a lovely man, but clearly had, I don't want to sound macabre, but almost spent the intervening years waiting to reunite with his, his friends who he lost that day, that his life had almost come to a full stop that day. So it's almost meaningless to say what if they hadn't crashed but you do wonder about the way that the european landscape in football terms evolved you've got real madrid who they then you know the european cup starts there was no european cup during the Grande torino's years had there been one would we be talking about them the way that the people eulogize about the di stefano real madrid would that Team ever have had the, the dominance, the five straight mm-hmm. titles they won in Europe.
3: Yeah, eraldo was the midfielder who, to, who played for Torino in the '76 Scudetto winning side. Um, said that you know in this city there is a, there is a club that has everything, and there is another club that had everything taken away from it. And you know you have to, that that has been a constant thread throughout Torino's career. You know in terms of Superga, Meroni. Um, Giorgio Ferrini, the captain, um, who would die of a brain hemorrhage just um, a few weeks after they they won the league title, a year after he'd retired. Um, Lentini, everything, Mondonico lifting his his chair above his head in protest at what was going on in that UEFA Cup final against Ajax. All those things that they were so close to something. And in the Grande Torino side, they did actually achieve greatness, but usually when they're so close to something and they have it taken away from
0: them. Mm, but when they did achieve greatness, it was Il Grande Torino. We'll finish off then with the sorts of two time World Cup and Olympic gold medalist Vittorio Pozzo on what Il Grande Torino represents.
1: Coloro che non la vista all'opera non possono immaginare il dinamismo e l'accordo stilistico e spirituale che da essa emanava quando l'unità si sentiva messa alla prova rimane come un esempio un esempio unico un fulgido esempio per tutti l'opera del Torino caduto a Superga
0: Gabriele many thanks pleasure James Horncastle to you as well Golazo will return next week we'll also be dealing then with the aftermath of this midweek round which is uh, well the bulk of which is about to get underway currently six points between Juventus and Napoli. Juve, as we kind of hinted at, heading towards title number seven in a row. Il grande Juve. And also that massive battle for the top four, which uh, Inter laid down a bit of a marker for a spot in there with their 4-0 demolition? Yeah, of Cagliari. Cagliari. Of Cagliari. Wow. Well, we'll talk about where we are. We've got some big games coming up this evening. We'll, we'll have a look at all of that, where we are when we return next Wednesday. Many thanks for being with us. But now from all of us here
1: Arrivederci You've been listening to Golazzo, the totally Italian football show It's a Muddy Knees Media production and for sales and advertising please email sales at muddyneesmedia.com.